If you ever dreamed of being an artist, a record producer, running your own record label, surrounding yourself with just the best, most creative talents of your time and just live in that dream, well, nobody that I know has done it like Richard Russell. He's my next guest on Last Party on Earth. Richard Russell runs XL Recordings, which is pretty much the best record label in the world. Uh, he started out heavy in the rave scene, uh, launched The Prodigy, and since then it's just been a string of some of the most creative and uh, iconic artists of the last 30 years. Richard is also a record producer. He's produced albums for Gil Scott Heron and Bobby Womack and Damon Albarn. He's launched his own collaborative artist project. Everything is recorded. He even made rave tracks back in the day, was on top of the pops. He's just released memoirs, uh, Liberation Through Hearing. And as you'll hear in this conversation, he's just a source of real wisdom. And, uh, well, it was a real pleasure to sit down with him. We talked about so much. We got pretty deep. (laughs) We talked about everything from the often unexplored connection between rave and hip-hop, about uh, Gil Scott Heron, Malcolm McLaren. We talked about being a polite punk. Uh, we talked about freestyle. We even got into why you should never stop making music, even if you're not as good as Prince. The importance of XL can't really be overstated. And well, it was just a pleasure to sit down with Richard. I do this podcast really for one reason, and that's to learn. And I learned a lot from this conversation. So I hope you enjoy it. This is Richard Russell on Last Party on Earth. Editor's note, any of the tracks that we talk about in this episode can also be found on my Spotify or SoundCloud artist page, so you can follow along. Last, last, party, party, on Earth. How are you? Hey, uh, yeah, I'm pretty good. You? I'm good. <laughs> it's like, it's like a, it's always like a weird first date. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, it's strange. I mean, we've never, we've, we've never spoken a word or I've never even seen you. No, never. We've never had any internet communication, anything. No communication. Maybe that's better. We're going to know pretty soon. Yeah, we're going to know pretty we'll soon see. if we hate each other or not. So I was really, really excited to talk to you. I mean, I, and, and I think one of the reasons it's a little bit personal, but so I grew up in the 80s. I was obsessed with music from the beginning. And then my, my whole idea of cool the DNA of cool kind of came from like public enemy and grand Royal magazine and beastie boys and then all this stuff. And then when rave came for me, it was like a nuclear reactor, like my entire life. It's not an exaggeration to say, uh, came into focus and I, and I just fell madly in love, like a real love affair. And when that happened, you know, now I didn't know you or much about it at the time. But now when I think about it, it's like you were there. I mean, you were at the epicenter and you were like putting out these records. And I, I think of it as like dropping these stones in the water and these ripples were traveling out. And I was just a kid in Canada and you catch that wave. And in a lot of ways, it's like, I'm still riding that energy wave. So you're one of the only people I can think of where I can actually say thank you for that. That period and that music and that energy is just unbeatable, I think, for me. So thanks. Well, not, not at all. Nothing. I mean, and so who were you like, who were you, where did you grow up? I grew up in Montreal. And so were there, just remind me, were there local DJs playing that sound or were you, were you? It was, it was I, I, I was the first. Not to, not to show off, but I was the first. I was the, I was the pioneer <laughs> okay, okay, let me. of this. 
Well, <laughs> no, you're quite right. So well, I'm sure that's true. So say it. I mean, what was the beginning for you of Rave? What was maybe first party or first record? Or when did you fall in love with it? I, it was hip hop. You know, I, I can't. I, yeah, I can't stress that enough. It was all about it was all about hip hop. And it was and it was that way for not just me, but pretty much everyone involved with XL in the early days of it, we were like, so in terms of like myself, Prodigy, particularly Liam, SL2, we were all coming out of hip hop and reggae to an extent as well. And we all loved that. And we all wanted to make it, and we're trying to make it. Liam from Liam Hallett was in a hip hop group. He was cut, cut to kill, kill, right? Yeah, right, exactly. And on that label, Tam Tam, which Silver Bullet was on, who, who kind of made that record Twenty Seconds to Comply, which was like kind of the Robocop sample. Yeah, exactly. And it was that was interesting, right? Because it was super fast hip hop that was actually bleeding into like a kind of breakbeat hardcore record, you know. And there were a few of those really fast. British rap records, Silver Bullet, Hijack, Gunshot, and they kind of predicted the sound. Mm. You know, they were very much like, they were kind of hinting at what we did more blatantly. Because we were all frustrated hip-hop DJs. We all made, <laughs> attempted to make hip-hop records. We were going to every gig. We were seeing every American rap artist was coming to London. We were seeing the shows. So we all wanted to do that. We couldn't do that. We all wanted to be Marley Marl. We all wanted to be the Bomb Squad. We were all trying. It wasn't happening. The breakbeat thing, when, I mean, this applies to the, the reinforced guys as well, all coming out of hip hop. When we all start, and, you know, because we're also going raving to Acid House. That's the thing. So pre breakbeat, there's Acid House, and we're hearing all that, and we're going to raves. And it's like there's this thing creeping in, which is we're not going to be able to avoid this. Like, this is where the. The energies. When you were experiencing the acid house thing, I guess like 88, 89, whatever, were you a convert to that? I mean, in terms of that, had that energy already got you? Did you love those parties? Yeah, I was really into it. It's a bit earlier than that. It's like 86, 87. It's, it's cre- you know, it's, cre- it's creeping in. No, I was re- in 88. No, I was really into it. I was really into it. Okay, you're, when you I was, were sold on that. Yeah, I was into it. So like when I was meant to be revising for my... Like this was, I think, a big turning point for me. The day that I was meant to be revising for my A-level, like the day before my A-level started, Mm. I was at this rave called Biology in a field in Elstree, big rave. And this was kind of in the, you know, it was out in the suburb, well, it was like the countryside just north of the suburbs. Hertfordshire, Hertfordshire, the countryside, um, very near to where I grew up, the kind of, Jewish suburbs just outside there, the country. There's this huge biology wave. And I was there for the whole weekend and I didn't look at one book and I hadn't done any revision and I was going to fail those exams. And I almost like, I think when I went to that biology wave, I think I grabbed it. I grabbed the idea that I was going to fail those exams. I was like, mm. I'm plunging in here. Like this is, you know, it was a, I think it was a turning point. No way back. That was very sort of meaningful. And that was one of those, that was definitely one of those moments. So yeah, so we were, we were totally into into that. I was into that scene. I was hearing those, you know, those DJs. Um, it was great hearing you talk to Pete Tong. Ah, okay. The two of your the two of your podcasts that I listened to. When you asked me to do this, I went and had a look at it, and 
I saw Kieran Hebden, I thought I listened to that, and I saw Pete Tong, I thought I listened to that. I'll get kind of a bit of a bit of a spectrum. I love and Pete. um he it was especially the first half, man, because he's seen everything. Yeah. yeah and yeah. a lot and a lot of that stuff is it's funny, a lot of English stuff is less documented than Americans than the equivalent American stuff. Like hit Pete talking about that kind of early soul scene, the kind of yeah, white. I loved that. The kind I of, loved that. It's amazing the kind of white DJ soul scene, you know, that was like the pre pre warehouse parties, because that was it. You know, Breakbeat Hardcore came after Acid House. Acid House came after the warehouse parties. You know, the warehouse parties. It was hip hop and rare groove and kind of house starting to creep in, and the warehouse parties were sound systems who prior to that had been reggae sounds really. So there was this whole. There's this whole amazing narrative in this country. And I think we've always, you know, one of the things I've, I've sort of struck me recently, and you'd have experienced some perspective on this, is that that house music of the, like, like the formative house music, dance records, th- those records were embraced in the UK to the extent that they were like mainstream hits, a lot of them, in a way they were not in America. Mm. Like, America was not into dance music in any type of mainstream way. It was a niche. And you know, so when I got to Vinyl Mania 89 and was working there in New York, I'm in the epicenter of like dance music and it's very much like it's niche. And it's, and the thing that struck me is in the UK, there was, there was a tradition of straight white men liking dance music and dancing. And so Northern Soul was that it was mm. like tough like straight white guys dancing to black american music and the soul scene that pete tong was part of it was that and like i, I kind of think in america to my mind like the dance music was sort of kept in its like you know it was like like you know it was told to stay in its yeah, lane because it was definitely. a bit it was a bit gay it was a bit ethnic it was like america doesn't want this or something did, did you have that feeling about it yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I think, and that's why so many of us took our cues from basically England or Germany. Like what you said, the acceptance of dance and seeing how a lot of those records were successful. Like I, I would always see in England how you could have a band like KLF get on top of the pops. The fact that strange records could make it could have some that there was some kind of intersect between pop and 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 bizarre or artsy. That must have been pretty inspiring. I was on top of the pops with the first oh, yeah, tune I ever made. Yeah, that's you, the first. That the was bouncer the bouncer track. Re- yeah, that was the first. What year record. is that? Ninety-one, and that was that was the first record I ever made, and it was and we made me and Nick. We made it in you know a couple of hours. It's my best friend Sam, who's still like one of my best friends. It's his voice saying, "Your name's not Dan. You're not coming in into a cassette recorder in my, f- in my yeah in my flat in Camden and. So we that record. So it's raw. I mean, it's a it's a it's a loop of an U.S. hip hop record, never to be named. You know, keeping my fingers crossed, yeah. never to be uh, <laughs> probably probably being snitched on who sampled as we speak. There's no statute of limitations on sampling. <sighs> yeah, I'm moving moving swiftly on. Um, <laughs> but but um, yeah. We, so we did that for you know to DJ with. We made that tune to DJ with. That's what it was for. It was for our DJ boxes. And before you know it. We're, you know, we're on what is the equivalent of American bandstand. That wasn't happening in America, no. you know. And so you, like, 
America has got like not got a good record for that. It's like there's all these pioneers, you know, and so you've got all these people, you know, you've got everyone, you know, in Chicago and Detroit and New York doing all this incredible stuff. And we're seeing that and kind of copying it and blending it with other things. And the UK is really receptive. But in the US, it's definitely, you know, ghettoized, kept in its niche. But there's definitely always been this kind of openness open-mindedness in the UK that from what I understand goes way back to like Jimi Hendrix not being accepted in America because he's too strange and he comes to England and everyone loves him and the people in the mainstream love him and accept him and then America takes another look at it and I think gradually that's kind of what's happened with dance music because you know by the time by the time you get to Lady Gaga it's all dance music in America but that that took a long time. I mean, definitely in England, for whatever reason, it seems that musically is a little bit of a harmonious zone where people forget their politics a little. I think it's, I think there's a, there's a genuine um, kind of thirst for newness in this country. People are really up for, they just want something exciting and they're just, you know, public enemy is another one. Public Enemy, who everyone loved Public Enemy. I, I was obsessed. Thought, they were thought of as very confusing in America. People didn't, you know, they talk about this. People didn't really get their head around it. And that's why on the second Public Enemy album, the, you know, the, the, the intro is recorded at a gig in London because that's, they didn't, they didn't get that kind of reaction in America at that time. So, we, you know, so that, that's something that's like definitely, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of about this place, that there is this like, there is this openness for something new, but it's all—it's all a dialogue, right? It's all a dialogue between the US and Europe, and that's—it's all—it's all about that back and forth. So, were you were you and Liam friends right from the beginning? Well, not not pre working together, no. But we, I think, straight away we um, we saw eye to eye. We were the same age. We had the same musical journey via hip-hop into this kind of new you know pretty mad world we found ourselves in and and also I think you know we were both pretty ambitious and we were both like we want to do we want to do it and we want to do it a certain way we want to do it kind of our way so I think Mm. yeah that was that that was powerful and so when you so you guys you're going to acid house parties and you have this you know your hip-hop guys and you love it was there something in, was there a clear thing of like drums? Like how do we get the drums we love to work in these environments? Like, I mean, is that, it, was, there, was there something like that in terms of tempo and like trying to get the aesthetic we love, the hip hop, that structure, what we love about it and somehow make it work for this new environment? Was that ever, or it wasn't so conscious? No, I think, I think that's it. I think, oh, okay. I, I think, in a, I think, in, <laughs> I, got, I, got I think, yeah, I think in a nutshell, that's it. Uh, whether it was conscious or not is a good question. I don't know if it was conscious, but I, um, you know, I put this book out recently. I haven't read it yet. I want to read it, but I couldn't order it for some reason here. And it was only audio and I'm desperate to read it. So, so yeah, the audio books, the audio books fun because I got, I got a lot of the people who are in the book to say their parts. So you hear the, vo- you hear the voices, of, you know, you hear the voices of like, all sorts of people um, from like, you know, I don't know, Rick Rubin or Hank Shockley from the Bomb Squad to like oh, wow. 
my dad or just like random people kind of kind of popping up mia it's really it's really it was fun the audio, it was really fun doing the audio book um but when i was writing that I, a couple of times and people told me this happens that if you write any sort of memoir you might think you don't remember much but once you put your brain into that gear things start coming up things start popping up for you and one of the things that popped up was this that we did a pa at the at Rage at Heaven, which was Fabio and Groove Riders Thursday night, kind of legendary rave night at Heaven. Um, and so we kicked like a meal, we played there. And our live set was basically, I would cut up records and Nick would mime on keyboards and we had an MC and we had dancers. And the way I started the set was I had two copies of this record called Do The James by Super Lover C and Casanova Rudd. It was an obscure New York hip-hop record, pressed at thir- cut, at th- cut at 33, as US 12s were, and I had them both pitched up to 45, and I was cutting the break in at 45, and then I mixed the bouncer in, like the baseline intro to the bouncer, I mixed it in over the top of that. What I was doing was I was saying... This is where this comes from. I was kind of pointing at it and saying, we are basically playing sped up hip hop records. And I don't think there was any conscious decision to say that. And I don't think I ever articulated that, but I was, you know, but 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 my actions said that. So I think that, that was a very sort of specific thing about what we were doing was we wanted to get the breaks in, we wanted to get the hip-hop in, we wanted to get the rough texture, as you say, the drums, we wanted to get that in, but the tempo was what made it all kind of click, was taking these American... And I, and I think at the time, people making hip-hop in New York at that time, I think it was pretty confusing what we were doing. I mean, if they got to hear it at all, mm. it was like, you know, because it was a, it was just, I think it was a very strange and alien sound you know to 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 the world it came from having said that big pioneer really you know really really big pioneer was frankie bones yeah i was gonna ask you about that that was one of my things because i was friends with bones and Mm. and this is just one of those again it's like i don't have too many people to talk about frankie bones you know (laughs) so i was gonna ask you how because that's flow masters and that's a lot of your early records right was frankie Mm. so Mm. how did you meet him Prior to those things, like the Bones Breaks 12s, for me as a DJ... Those are crazy tools. You needed those. They were like... They're great. They're great. They were great. And he was a B-boy, right? He was a... He was, I, th- I believe he was a graffiti writer. Yeah, he was. Who nearly, who, who nearly died under a train once. Like, he, you know, he, he'd lived it. Like, all those guys. And they also... And those guys also... Those guys also had that kind of like... New York Italian freestyle background too. Oh yeah, of, yeah. Of like real party records. You know, they were party party guys. records. Party records with the eight oh eight not playing a four four. Mm. Right. Yeah, so yeah. there was a kind of there's almost there's like a hip hop link there as well because you know the, the, a freestyle record is. Do you think you need to explain to your listeners what a freestyle record is? I don't even really know how to describe it. I mean, I always knew freestyles. It was it was a Miami thing, wasn't it? Well, yes, yeah, it was, but it was also but it was also New York. The but the freestyle scene it was Hispanic, 
you know, you had you had Shannon let the music play. That was oh, a real like great record. That whew, what a record. What so a that, record. That was, that was a real um, that was a blueprint, a kind of mm. template. And then you had all these records like Nocera, Summertime on Sleeping Bag, and you had all these records. You had that cutting label. Oh yeah, and cutting, ma- of course. Cutting, you know, Aldo Aldo Marin. It was mainly Hispanic um, producers and always vocal, right? They were always like big vocals on top. Well, yeah, there was a funny thing, though, with the vocals. There were always vocals, but how can I put this politely about those vocals? Cheap vocals. <laughs> <laughs> Is that polite? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it was a li- I think, I guess it was, a little, it was a little bit its version of like later on when Italo had a similar vibe. Sure. Where it was kind sure. of like, it was maybe B-level vocals is a nicer way or a meaner yeah. way. I don't know. I mean, the Italo records, in a way, have more soulful vocals than the freestyle records. Like, the freestyle vocal sound was thin. It yeah, was like that's a thin, it. Thin. It was <laughs> like a thin pop, thin pop sound. Yeah. And it's pretty much what Madonna uses her blueprint mm. early on. Yeah, like Lucky you know, Star. Was the, yeah, it was... And Jelly Bean, you know, Jelly Bean Benitez oh, course, was, like her, yeah. was her producer. So, like, that, that Latin freestyle thing was... Yeah, it was very interesting that, and it was a very sort of. I think all these. I mean, I would imagine that that freestyle is is documented online somewhere because I feel like most American subcultures end up being documented, um, you know, pretty well. But there's definitely. I was, this, I was I was saying this before. We've got a lot of subcultural stuff in the UK that's really not documented. One of which I'd say to an extent is breakbeat hardcore. One of which to an extent is UK rap, like of, of the eighties. Like no one's really kind of dived. I mean, I, I've kind of done my bit to an extent in my book. Well, hard, UK hardcore is definitely underrepresented in terms of, I mean, it's real impact compared to how much it's been talked about and documented, definitely under. Yeah. Another thing that I realized about it recently is, is like, you know how like the early New York hip hop DJs were actually playing very eclectic music. So... Africa Bambata was legendarily eclectic. He played rock records. Obviously, they were playing craft work. They were playing records that came from all sorts of sources. And that was the building blocks of hip-hop, was the breaks from, from any kind of music, from any kind of record. And the Breakbeat Hardcore records, we were just nicking stuff from everywhere. It was like real magpie approach. You know, Shut Up and Dance have a huge print sample in, in one of their tunes. Like, there's, you know, the, you... you there was a lot of thieving going on, but but in doing that, this incredibly original music got made. Hmm. Like the most original music sometimes is doing the most nicking from other music, which I think is a, it's interesting, right? It's like originality is not exactly what people might think it is. I always loved about hip hop was also it's also the confidence. It's the confidence to say I'm not going to disguise this. I'm not going to hide behind what I've borrowed. I'm going to put it right to the front, and I'm going to do it with such it, it's with such steel, you know, with such confidence. Like boom, this is the idea. Exactly. And, and exactly. In, in doing that with the, with the balls, there's like an honesty to it and an ambition to it, and it somehow ends up more creative i think exactly that 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 that's that's precisely it and you know so now you'll have you know there'll be studios all over the world particularly in la right now with people making pop records where they're blatantly copying other things and trying to hide it 
Yeah, which is which you know? is which is nothing. It's just bland, you know. It's this whack. There's no and, there's and, no statement there. No, there's no statement. Whereas I think when you put it out there and you say, I'm just the sum of my influences and and Bowie did this. Mm. Bowie put it you know, he put it out there. He was so referential of the things that had inspired him from the word go. You know, he's got a re- he's got a song on Hunky Dory called Song for Bob Dylan. It's like he's pointing you mm. Uh, the things that have influenced him. And on the same album, he is Andy Warhol. Right, <laughs> He right, did two on the right. same record. Exactly. <laughs> and so you're, that's so generous yeah. to your audience because, you know, if you discover Bob Dylan and Andy Warhol from that record, you've got a lifetime of inspirational art. Yeah. And Bowie must have put a lot of people up on that. And... I think that's really generous and I'm a, such a big believer in that and just saying this is this is it you know here it is here's what here's what we're using you know and go and go and find that as well and it's also it's 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 bold you know it's funny it's interesting I I can't believe I hadn't made such a clear connection between hip hop and early hardcore and now that I'm thinking about it I mean those records that had such a massive impact on us as kids that's part of what I loved was these the samples and the things they were stealing from were big and they were put right up front. And as a listener, you, you get so much from that, you know? Yeah. But that, that, you know, the hardcore breakbeat, hardcore rave sort of emulating hip hop. I think there's then an interesting sort of forward, you know, you kind of then reverse into the future, like, because from rave from particularly from breakbeat, hardcore rave comes jungle that's like the next thing that happens in the UK. And then after Jungle, Garage happens. And after Garage, Grime happens. And then you've actually got British rap music. It does seem like over the last, I don't know what it is, five years or so, it's finally really completely hit its stride. It's on, fi- it's on fire here. But it's not just the UK. It's most places in the world, right? Most places in the world have now... People I guess in it Germany took listening time, to German you know, rap. Just, it, yeah, it took time. I think France was France was was always you know because France have obviously you know French and French people haven't have a lot of kind of French pride, don't they? Um, so you kind of you <laughs> that's kind a nice of way see. Of, that's a nice way of saying it. That's very gentle. <laughs> if, they, if they don't like how it's running, going, you're running for office. <laughs> if they don't like how it's going, they're burning things down. You come on, I love the French man. I love it. I love that whole. Yeah, I love that whole. I love that whole French outlook. It appeals to me because it's very sort of like it's very junglist. It's very like this is how it is. Like this is how we do. I mean, they'll riot about anything there. It's amazing. Like you know, they're not taking it. They're not taking it lying down, are they? No. Parisians like so. That, that's that's appealing. Did you dress like a raver? Oh yeah, <laughs> of course. Okay, good. I just want to check. Of course. I mean, my, I, I, the thing is, there was a crossover. The dress was hip hop influenced as well. Yeah. So the first sneakers I had that I was really proud of okay. was I had some feeler high tops and they were really big white feeler high tops. And I had, um, what year, what year are we talking here? 86, 87, I'd say. Oh my God. Okay. Go, yeah, that's and, and so by the time you're in 88, by the time you're in 88, I've got like, I've got big high tops. I've got um, very baggy jogging pants mm. and a bright green champion hoodie. That was my favorite hoodie. And my hair is what you would call the curtains. Oh, Do yeah, I know. Of cur- course, the, of, know, course curtains, of course, yeah. of course, of course. <laughs> and so like the, that, that was like, 
and and jewelry as well, like chains, like necklaces, a lot of jangling. So yeah, I you know I was I was all the way in, but it wasn't like again there was nothing very conscious about it. That was just that was how you dressed, you know. That was the sort of that was that was the style. I still want. I remember once I saw. Remember that label formation. DJ SS is label from Leicester. I still Great to this label. day want, I was going to do a mail order to get a Formation Records bomber jacket and whatever. I didn't have enough money or whatever. And I st- it's like one of the few things in my life that I still want. It's probably attainable, all things considered. No, but Well, yeah, that would be, that would be a really, really good thing to have. And of course, because like the, you know, the fashion cycles of 20 year cycles, I've got a feeling that a formation bomber jacket is worth like $30,000. Well, it would be very appealing. <laughs> it would be very appealing to the average fashion conscious teenager now. Yeah. It would be it would be right up there as something that people people want to wear. Jump into a little bit of the records. So the idea with my show is uh well, if it's your last party on earth and you're a DJ, pick pick records to play. So what is an opening record for you? An opening record that you love? Well, I had two um I had two. two. One of them I love so much. I had two ideas. I had two ideas there. Um, oh, I also listened to Errol's podcast. And wasn't oh, it cool. amazing? Wasn't it amazing? How, how, how he, he can't just, answer a question? He wouldn't answer the questions. <laughs> it was, there was something so sweet about it, though. It was so endearing. And especially with you getting more and more pushy and like, <laughs> can I get the name of the tune? And well, he was like, just... saying, and he was qualifying it all. It, wasn't it? It was really just endearing, I thought. It was really Yeah. Nice. Well, I mean, I love, I mean, that that is Errol. So in that sense, it was a great, it's nice when through a podcast or whatever, you really get the essence of what a person is. But also it but was met- like, it was also kind of a, it was borderline insane. It was like circling yes. endlessly yes. around. <laughs> it was, it was, it it was, was funny. But, but I did, I did mean to say that I wanted to issue a disclaimer, really. I, I was going to, I was, I wanted to point this out to you before I said I'd come on and do it, but I thought I might as well just, we might as well just get into it now, which is that all the people who have done this podcast are really, really big, popular, successful DJs. And I am not one of those. And and so what I, what I kind of wondered was, I couldn't work out if you'd sort of peered into my soul and worked out that DJing was actually my first love. And I do still see myself as a DJ, even though yes, I DJ... I- Fairly infrequently. That's exactly I, what I did. Okay. Because <laughs> I, what I realized was, rather than sort of debating whether I was really relevant or qualified for this, what I realized was it, any of my gigs could be my last gig because I do them so infrequently. But I was really, listen, I was, I was, I was honored to be, to be asked though, because, you know, I am, in, I am in company here. I mean, DJing is my first love and it is the first thing I did. And... The combination, you know, what I also realise is from listening to you, listening to Errol, um, Pete's background, obviously, you all run record labels as well. Yeah. And you're all producers. And those three things, making music, DJing, running a record label, those three things have always been my work. Like, I've always seen that as what I do. I, I I have a hunch that you, like me, 
most of your ideas come from records. The inspiration, the joy, the moments of like, oh my God, we got to do this, or oh my God, I have to sample this, that the, the building blocks are actually records. And that that's and that's very much a DJ mentality. Yeah, that's right. I, and, you know, I'm music making now, which is what I actually do now, you know, which is what I do spend most of my time doing is being in the studio. And, you know, the DJ part of it is sort of, it's often quite because I'm work. I'm often producing other artists. It's like on the, it's often on the back burner, but then it's always there. And I think to make something to DJ with is, you know, that's not normally what I'm doing. And I like the freedom of music making without having to think about DJ boundaries and parameters. But I also recognize that when you do apply those parameters and boundaries, that can be very, very useful as well. Oh, in kind yeah. Of, in getting things right. And, and also because I'm a minimalist and that obviously suits, you know, records that have got to be p- played on PA systems. They, they, they need to have that minimalism. Well, so when you have the, I'm sure you had the experience early on, when you really know the destination, those limits uh, not just make it easier, but they, they, um, they let you really nail it. Okay, so let's not do the air already. What's the what's an opening what's an op, what's an opening <laughs> sorry Errol what's an opening record for you Sister Na- Sister Nancy yes. Bam Bam yes yes um and this is one of those records where I've come to realize that when someone says a record is well known or it's like oh everyone knows that record that is actually quite subjective like I feel like we did hit peak Bam Bam a couple of years ago and it was getting sampled everywhere. But it's still, you know, it's not like a mainstream hit record all the same. It's one of these kind of legendary underground building block records. One of the reasons I think I've, I have, you know, I've opened sets with it before. One of the reasons it works is because for me and what I try and do when I do DJ is that it's, it's live it's a live record. It's not a program record. And because it's because of that, it's really quite gentle sounding. And that leaves you a lot of places to go. And it leaves you room to have impact with whatever's coming next. And I like to play dancehall when I DJ. And dancehall, you know, quite soon after Bam Bam got much tougher and more digital, you know, with the slanting rhythm and these different rhythms that were digital rhythms. Bam Bam was one of the last of the live played Live drums with them. So that's one of the reasons it's a good, it's, for me, it's a good opener.
so happy when you chose that one. She is one of the best track names ever for a song. She did a record called Only Woman DJ with Degree. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Which is such a good Yeah. That's good. <laughs> it's such a funny title. You were kind of want to do you want to do one of those about yourself. What would you call your one? What would you be? Like only the only what I don't have what? a degree. I don't know. I did the total similar to what you did with your A levels. I was one credit away from a history. I studied history in university um, and I was one credit away. And it was like, it was really like rave and academics were just in a race and rave was winning. And I actually dropped out to throw a party and I guess it was 92 or 93 or whatever. And that was it for my, for my academic do, career. But, but could you do an equivalent one called like, I don't know, could you do one called only superstar dance music DJ who's a good interviewer with a podcast. I could do uh, only man DJ who is a stockbroker between 9.30 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. What, you? Yeah. Are you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, for fun, it's like a hobby. It's not something I'm so proud of, but in, ter- in terms of just something left field that nobody <laughs> knows that what, about. Really? Is that what you do? Just for fun. Well, for fun. I, I do, you know, when the market's open at 9.30. During quarantine, I do for fun. It, just for like, I give myself like an hour or two hours. My father's a stockbroker, so. Wow. So, yeah, well, that would, definitely, that would definitely be good for a Sister Nancy type. <laughs> it's not for <laughs> you. Well, okay, but okay, you know what, though? Now, actually, I feel very comfortable with you so I can hit another gear. I joke about the stockbroking thing, but there's mm. something important in it, which is... Um, I have always, in my mind, coming up from the rave thing, I was always, basically, there's, there's the artist brain and there's the entrepreneur brain. I think the dominant part, the part that really feels good, is all about music and creation. That's mm-hmm. when I feel my best and I think that's when I'm at my best. But there is mm-hmm. a slightly darker side, but mm-hmm. not, not always darker because, ironically, it's the side that the world tends to reward you for a lot, which is a little more numbers-oriented, business-oriented, strategic... Um, mm. now I, I would imagine you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. How did you, between someone that at, at the core, you're a music lover and you're a producer and you made things, you've also built a massive business. You've had to for sure make a million tough decisions. You've had, you're an A&R person. You've had to manage staff, all these, and just the core ambition of, of wanting to go so far are you at peace? Have you found a good zone in that? Or is it always a bit of a struggle? You know, I work with Gil Scott Heron and yes. he was an enormous source of profound statements, profundity, okay. profundity. Oh. And when I, when I asked him, I asked him a slightly similar question to that once. Okay. About, which was kind of about how he saw himself. Mm. And he said... I don't see myself one way or another. And if you think like that, you're going to die a thousand deaths between here and the corner. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think what I came to realize at a certain point was you've got to be grateful for any strengths you've Mm. got, any abilities you've got, anything that is a resource that you can use especially anything you enjoy doing you just got to use it and if it makes you you know and if you can do it with your heart in it then you got to do it and I think there is a sort of heart v head thing that goes on 
um, which is what you're talking about. There. Yeah. And it is, and it is an interesting thing to talk about, but I know that when I've done things that were a labor of love, they've always worked. Yeah, definitely. Always. Doesn't mean commercially. I just mean it's worked. It's worked for me. It's worked for me. And it's and I've gone from somewhere to somewhere else. Mm. And when I've tried to do things for reasons which are more to do with ego or wanting to get ahead. They don't or, work so you know, well. They, they, it doesn't, that doesn't <laughs> work for me. And I don't come out of that feeling how I want to feel. And, you know, what the Buddhists call grasping, you know, mm, yes, grasping exactly. behavior. Now, of course, you've got to know who you are because there's some people who can do that stuff and it does work for them. Yeah, that, that was my next question. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I do. Because we're, we're all different beasts, we're all different creatures. See, that's really interesting for me because I feel exactly like you do. I feel like if I look at my history, it's actually, it is quite simple. When you really are in love with what you do and you feel it and there's passion, it works. And the ability to fake it or do it for a different motive and it just doesn't. There must be people where that doesn't apply. There must be people who are doing things for the wrong reasons and it works. Yeah, I think, because I think that's like, that's what most of culture is. You know, if you turn on TV and look at X Factor or whatever, that's what they're doing, right? And for the people who are doing that stuff, or the people who are in charge of it, not necessarily the people like like participating in those kind of shows, that's what works for them to think in those to think in those ways. Like just business people, commercial minded people. Um, I'm an artist. Yeah, you've got to know what you are in the end. The clarity with which you feel that and say that. Have you always felt that? Were there times where it wasn't so clear? Well, in the first instance, we would never have used a word like artist because it would have been it would have been highly <laughs> highly pretentious. You're not going around which, in ninety ninety one telling everyone no, you're an artist. I'm an artist. It would have been like what? Like what? Do you wear a do you wear a beret, <laughs> a beret and have like yeah, exactly. a, a stripy jumper? That, like have you got a paint that no, palette um, with the paints on it? Yeah. Now we were making tunes. We were making tunes, and we were DJing. And we were making tunes. We were putting out tunes. But of course, that was our artistic endeavor. That was all an artistic endeavor, and it, you know, and, it, and it, we were artists, and so. I think then as like Prodigy took off, the label took off with Prodigy, my sort of rave music making career faded out. I kind of didn't, you know, I found myself in charge of the label, which I wasn't in the first place. And I was still, I was still a kid. And I was in charge of it. And I was like, I'm going to make this work. It's going to work. Prodigy is going to be big and we're going to do. And then beyond that, I was like, and now I want to do other stuff. And I don't want it to be a rave label anymore. I want to get into other worlds and we're doing this. That was all wicked. It was great. I built something with like fantastic people, great team of people. But I really was like, um, I was artistic in the choices I made about the artist. I did that with my gut and my instinct as much as I could. And then the times when I didn't do that, it didn't work. And I messed up and it didn't work. And I was, so I was learning that lesson of like, keep your ego out of this stuff, you know, and do it. You know, you've you, you, you got to have your heart fully engaged in what you're doing. But while I was doing that, the music making had gone and I got really, really miserable. Yeah, that's what and, I you was, know, that's what I got. That's what I was going to say. I, you know, I was, I, I was depressed. I got clinical depression. I was, I was in a really bad way. And 
it wasn't because I wasn't making music, but not making music would have would have not helped. That would have been damaging me, you know, that I didn't. If you've got a creative outlet, you have to try and keep it engaged. It's really, really important. And also I stopped DJing. I stopped DJing. I stopped making tunes. And I got quite serious about the label, building the label. And, and it worked. But there was a point. See, the funny thing was, one of the things that made me insecure was how brilliant Liam was. Because my my tunes, with, with a very similar mentality, I started to think, my tunes are not as good as his. And I need to sort of do things in service of what he's doing. Mm. And that was fair enough. But if everyone looked at it like that, every single artist and musician who'd heard Prince would have stopped. Yeah. And there'd be no point in that. Prince didn't want everyone to hear him and stop because he was better than them. Because he was better. Prince was better than everyone Mm -hmm. else. But that was not a reason to stop because, you know, you're not as talented as Prince. No one else could do what Prince did. You know, no one else could play every instrument and write like that and dance like that and play drums like that, you know. So what I realised now was this was my youthful insecurity um, and kind of lack of lack of awareness really made me stop. And the funny thing was, the catalyst for getting back into music making was Liam. Because Liam said, um, in there must have been about 2003 or something, 2002, he um, said, have you got a laptop and have you got Reason? The program Reason um, software. Because I think this will suit what I remember of how you make music. Which is working and, fast, minimal, limited choices, mm, get your idea out. Mm. And from the moment I got that, I was just back in and reason then leading on to logic. And then me kind of like, then sort of retracing my steps and saying, okay, so what analog equipment might still be relevant and interesting? And, um, you know, can I combine the new approaches with the old approaches? And And I loved being back in the studio I loved it more than I did first time because first time round it was cool but it was purely a means to an end yeah it was purely like make a tune for DJing boom out we go that worked yeah, great yeah, yeah, yeah. but this but this time round there was some theory and there was some thought and there was the idea of process and there were also masters who I could ask stuff it's amazing you know so I had like people around the creative joy of using your your creative instincts to help guide other artists did that start to compensate did that start to fulfill you in the creative way that originally was from making tracks or like did it ever kind of balance it out or is it a different energy the, if you're doing that work correctly it is creative it's highly creative and the people who, I mean, going back historically, the A&R, you know, who was the Beatles A&R man? It's George Martin. George Martin, right? yeah. And the labels were, the first labels were run by record producers. They were just, they were just part of a studio. So I think a lot of like the greatest music of all time has been a product of these things being integrated. And I think... The, the more those things have got separated out, kind of 
that that doesn't tend to be that helpful. I mean, so you, Kieran, Errol, the fact that you have this combination of disciplines means each discipline feeds the other one and record labels for them to be great like they need to have serious love for music and passion and knowledge and creativity at the center of them and if they don't they're going to be awful you know so so i think that 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 like the the knowledge and the passion and the musicality even is all you know daniel miller and mute rick rubin there's very you know lee scratch perry like there's most of the you know most people in the in the production world who've kind of who've really innovated the record label has been it's a natural thing to do and to try um and it sort of makes a lot of sense and you absolutely can put creativity into it now is that the same as actually making your own tunes well no but i know for a lot of people they prefer it to making their own tunes because it's well it's very sort of it's more it's more time efficient isn't it like mm. i now make record like i'll i'll produce someone's album i'm living and breathing it for a period of months with them and when i was full time running the label i'd be getting a whole bunch of records done in that period of time um when you were full time running the label how would you divide what was business and what was creative in terms of your own life like time wise and energy wise I've got a business partner, Martin Mills, who owns Beggars, who's been my partner all the way through. Okay. And and did he shoulder I, a lot of the the bullshit? Like always, always has, still does, <laughs> still does. Okay, um, that's that's incredible. And he's a <laughs> he's, uh, he's he's a he's a zen he's a zen master in the material world. You know? oh my so God. okay, so you so, send him a bouquet of flowers every day. Yeah. So uh, there's a. I think that the thing that occurred to me, I used to try and do that stuff mm. and I used to get really stressed out by it. Okay. Be- because I operate on emotion. Yeah. 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 And, exactly, and, fe- exactly. and feeling and feeling. So once you get into that world of like, like figure facts and figures, mm. like that'll fuck you up. Yeah. If that's not what you're, if that's not what you're built for, just as if you're built for that and you try and get in, and you try and write lyrics, that's not going to work for you, you know? So, that's where there's definitely a divide. And I tried to do that. And then at a certain point, I thought to myself, one minute, there's Martin's, he, he can do all this stuff. He's the prince. I'm not, He's I'm not the sure prince anyone wants, I'm not sure anyone wants me to do this stuff. I'm not sure anyone. And so at the point when I said, you know what? I really just want to talk about music. I just want to talk about records. I just want to make records. You know, it's, I don't, I think everyone, I think everyone around me was like, Thank God for that. When was that? When would you say that clarity came? Well, I'd say that I, th- I think this has been increments. This has been steps, you know? So I think as we got into like the 2000s, I think I started to drop any idea of trying to <laughs> be a business person of any sort. And I thought, I'm, to know. I'm concentrating on the records and I think the more I concentrated on the records and then I was also rebuilding my own musical practice um, 
and you know and kind of simultaneous kind of simultaneously I mean if we really want to go there simultaneously kind of building my spiritual practice as well because all these things are interlinked I, I do I do so, want to go there but I have to ask you a question before I forget it's important the years where you were kind of let's say attempting to to push the business side mm. was was the motivation was it like out of necessity or was there ego in that was there a sense that I can do this too was it because you had I th- to or because I cause thought, you thought it you I thought it I thought it was necessity but it was ego okay and if and if I would have been more conscious I would have seen it's ego now I don't want to say any of this to imply and now I have great consciousness and I see everything you know I might well be looking back on this in 10 15 years and saying yeah you know 2020 I was still a bit of a dick who knows do you know what I mean I mean it's a, it's a process this right I've like awareness is a kind of that's that's a that's a long well so that's a lifelong journey you hope of like gradually opening your eyes and seeing things yeah and you probably do look back and you think i was a bit of a jerk but that's because you've kept learning you know well absolutely i mean there was a very good yeah there was there was a very good um interview with um ad rock from the beasties where a while ago where they said you know given how sexist your lyrics were, aren't you a bit of a hypocrite the way you talk about things now? And he said, I'd rather be a hypocrite than to have stayed the same person. Yeah. And you think, absolutely. Like, what kind of a mind doesn't change? Like, it's, a, it's, a, it's all about that. Okay, so, oh my God, we could talk forever. So I got to go to another record here. So what's a dream peak energy record for you? Two ways of doing this for me. Mm. See... I don't always go all the way into hardcore if I DJ. That has to feel right to do that. So if I'm going all the way, then it would be a classic hardcore record, probably with big pianos in it. Mm. And the one that first one that sprang to mind was Feel Real Good by Mannix, which is on the Reinforced label. Um, you know, breaking screaming pianos, pitched up vocal. Yeah. It's not like it's not like it's the only one. There's a whole bunch of them. Another one that sprung to mind was, do you remember one called The Horn Track by Egyptian Empire? Yes. I mean, it's pretty rugged, that one. It's like, it's not subtle. It, it's not sophisticated. They're screamers. But they do, I think they hold up well, these tunes. I was always, this is a little bit off topic, but I was obsessed with Aeson, with the Trip to the Moon records. Oh, How, Aeson. What, what was the deal with Aeson? They were so well made. Like, you listen to them now, and they still stand up like, crazy amount of ideas how come he ended up on production house and not xl <laughs> oh, I, 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 I never came across him before production okay, house okay, like he's, okay. but production house was owned by a guy called phil fearon who was a soul star in the uk he had a group called galaxy and they had a hit song called dancing tight i mean those labels man like our peers they were great i love that you know production house reinforced suburban based 
formation. Um, that was like a you know rising high. That was like a, such a great era of these. Rising kind of- high is probably my favorite. I met Casper Pound. I met Casper oh, yeah, Pound yeah, yeah. taking a piss at a rave in Berlin. I was next to him, and he was waste. I mean, he was like, yeah, oh yeah, my he was god, a, he was, was an he was an adventurer. He was an adventurer. But the best one was Sharp and Dance. Sharp and Dance with that was that was so heroic. That label, it really was. They they, they were just amazing. Yeah, the other one though was is Wiley Ice Rink because those those like super stripped down, unbelievably minimal grime records to me they're like great works of art those records because they are so effective and if you hear them on a system they actually sound better now than ever and people lose their shit to minimal grime and that to me is quite an achievement you know to me that's more of an achievement than making people lose it to a piano screamer is like a super minimal grime record says a lot that you pick those two so one has all guns blazing it's got the pitch vocals it's got the pianos it's got the speed it's got everything to get the effect the other one is like a a poem every extraneous word removed nothing Mm. that isn't needed and it gets the reaction yeah they're all part of the same narrative though those tunes you know they're all coming out of a certain uk pirate radio um, sound system kind of place that you know just, just slightly different approaches what is a of your own tracks of your own productions which one would you pick yeah I've got I've got a super minimal extremely obscure banger called I Am Paint which had a big sample of Lee Scratch Perry in it and I made it for a mix that I was doing for Benji B show and it came out good and people wanted to get hold of it so I ended up pressing up like 250 copies and I got Lee Scratch Perry to paint the sleeves with me. I went to his house in Switzerland and we painted the sleeves together. Oh my god. And they were so they were so beautiful. I kind of didn't want to didn't want didn't want to sell you them. Just keep all so, keep all no, 250. So, so what we did was I came across this this quote, right, with this phrase in a book about the KLF which said that money is the shore to which man will be tethered until he finds a more spiritual form of exchange. And I was like, mm. we're going to swap these records. So I put a thing online saying, you make something for this purpose and send it to this address and I'll send you a hand-painted Lee Scratch Perry record. So that's what we did. We swapped them all. Oh, they're wow. All got, I think I've still got the website up somewhere so you can see them. The most incredible things people made and to swap for these records um, for this tune the tune stands up and because it's so simple and there's very little in it and it's like a sort of 110 BPM grime tune. There's quite a kind of unusual sort of pocket um, and it was made purely for DJing um, and yeah, I always managed to fit it in somewhere. Thank you. 
I'm just jumping around a little bit here. What did it feel like to write the memoirs? I mean, the actual experience of writing. Were you? What was your schedule like? How long did it take you? Did you have certain hours in the day you wrote? Yeah, I liked it. I liked it. It was it was quite similar to to you know that kind of music making, the sort of solo beat making thing, of just saying, okay, I'm going to spend, you know, the morning. Basically, it was mornings. It was every morning um, writing. Um, How many hours and, a day? Well, there were phases. I went away a couple of times and just wrote. So I did that a couple of times. That kind of like, you know, then that that's when really some bigger chunks got done. And then I'd come back to London and start at nine in my studio and write till lunchtime every day. And I did that for quite a long time. Um, and it was, you know, it was interesting getting a flow going. I wrote a lot, threw a lot away. I had a good editor. Um, took a while to establish the tone and work out what I was really saying but I always liked writing. I liked writing when I was at school. But I kind of, you know, I threw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, like when school was, when I was done with school, it's like I was done with writing. Yeah, and that was a shame, really. So it was it was nice to get that back and also to be, to be edited. You know, there was a moment when my editor said, don't be afraid of short sentences. I tell myself that every time before I do an interview, <laughs> I'm like, don't be afraid of a short question. That was a big breakthrough. And the tone of the book is it's quite direct in terms of, you know, someone referred to it as staccato. You know, it's a little bit, there's a slightly lyrical aspect to some of it. I think when it really works, it's like, I'm, I'm definitely like, I'm quite economical with the words in there. Yeah, it was cool. It was good to do. I recommend it. It's a really good process, man. It's really good to write things down. Uh, a dream closing record, which I understand is always a tricky question. Well, I thought I would, even if I haven't played hardcore, there's this one hardcore record on Shut Up and Dance by this guy, Peter Bouncer, who was a bouncer, nothing to do with my bouncer. <laughs> and that is a song called Love Is All We Need. And I think what they were trying to do was kind of emulate a Jam and Lewis 80s soul record, yeah. um, but with the breakbeat in it. It's so great. It's a closing record. It's a bit of a secret record. It's one of those kind of, you know, it's one of those weapons. Um, yeah, I, I love that record. Carry on, love, love is all we need. until you told me you put it and um i think of like chicago it just has that naive soulful it's, it's got that little bit of homemade feeling but it's also it is very pure and 
Well, that's it. I mean, that, that and that feeling, you know, this, this, I have this project, Everything is Recorded, which I do now, which is like a kind of collaborative musical project. And I work with a whole bunch of different people. And there's a vocalist called Infinite Coles on there, who's from New York. But he has that sound, which is very much a kind of Chicago, you know, that sound that, that is, it's a more, it's sad. Sort of a lot yeah, of those vocals are quite mel- sad. Melancholy. Yeah, melancholy, but gospely mm. and kind of uplifting at the same time. And I think that's a very, that's very deeply, I think in everyone from that era, everyone who was around in that era, those records, those uplifting, you know, Chicago soulful house records, they're so, they're, 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 they're deep in our DNA, really, those, those, those records. Um, what about a secret record? You know, I do, I make things to DJ with when I'm DJing and I'll put, you know, I'll, or I'll, I'll kind of combine things and put them together in a way that I think will be useful for the set. So I think, although I don't particularly need or want to have things that are just mine, you end up with some of those things just by, you know, making bespoke things to DJ with and, and like little little DJ weapons. Um, so yeah, I've, I've kind of ended up with quite a few secret ones. Um, and I've got, uh, so the, the I'll Take Care of You song that I produced for Gil Scott Heron, I've got a version of that with a with a breakbeat underneath it which is actually it's pretty it's quite similar structurally to the manix feel real good tune but with the gil scott heron i'll take care of you vocal over it um and obviously that song's had many incarnations because jamie xx did the great remix of it brianna and drake then borrowed it and made a tune based on it when i did it with gil it was a cover in the first place because we were covering a well, actually, I only knew the Mark Lanigan version, but then prior to that, there was the Bobby Blue Bland version. So that record's had like countless, infinite reincarnations. So, uh, so my sort of rave bootleg of it is quite a nice, uh, just just another incarnation. Really. I know you've been heard someone else. I can say about the way you carry yourself. somewhere you said Gil Scott Heron was really funny oh yeah he was so funny I love people with sense of humor yeah well a lot but a lot of the a lot of the people who are thought of as like the heaviest you know the most serious artistically serious people are often very very funny oh 100% like the heaviness goes into the work and the seriousness goes into the work but in person they want things to be pretty you know light and it's just about things not being boring right exactly just avoiding that I feel like the people that I really hold in the the top category, whether Prince or Bowie or Leonard Cohen, or it's clear that they are incredibly funny. You know, like when they yeah. when they want to turn yeah. it on. Because I think also in some ways it seems like humor just 
it's just goes hand in hand with a real understanding of life. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think like the, 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 the creativity and the art, it's like, it will, you can, you know, you can, you can process a lot of your issues through your art and your music, but at the same time, it is serious stuff, one's art. Hmm. And so I think the humor is like the sanity yeah, exactly. It's like a safety valve. It's like a, yeah. You can, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Definitely. What is, I just got some more questions here. Are you okay on time? You're okay for a, yeah, yeah, no, I'm fine. Okay. I'm fine. I'm, I'm in, um, I'm in mid lockdown. <laughs> you're, you're like, you're, it's like we could talk from now till Friday. Um, what is, what's a very good habit that you have? And if you want to circle back to stall for time, no problem. I'm a creature of habit. And the more I've become a creature of habit, the better. Because I think it's all habits. Man, me and you were like, that's exactly my current philosophy. That's why I asked so, the question. So when I've, had, when I've had bad habits, that'll fuck you up. Uh -huh. And I think when you have good, and I think when you have good habits... That can be your salvation. The world is your oyster. I, I think so. I think that structure, and it's not boring. Like when I was younger, I would have thought, oh, it would be boring to like have structure. But what you realize is like, if you have structure and you take some of these decisions away, because you're just, you know, you're just doing that, whatever the thing is every day. I mean, I suppose I've got to say, I started doing yoga about 20 years ago and I got to the point, I had a really good teacher and I got to the point where I could do it on my own. And I do it for a very short period of time, every day. I tend to just sort of refer to it as stretching. And I just get on the floor and stretch every day. And I think that's probably my best habit. I do that and I walk. I don't really do any other type of exercise. But I feel like for sort of self-maintenance and just kind of, you know, looking after yourself. Like that one is really, it's useful. It's a, it's a useful one. So I'm incredibly grateful to the person who taught me in the first place um, because I got such a powerful skill out of it. And it's so, um, it's so practical, you know, like if you're, do you, if you're, so do you have something like that for when you're traveling or whatever? Have you got some sort of routine? I play football. But, <laughs> but that's not as easy to do when you're on tour or now. Football, like soccer football. Yeah, yeah, soccer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's great. I mean, that is that. That's, that's my favorite. Really, that's a really good one. I mean, that's like. It's that's not really fun, a habit, it? though. No, but it's yeah, it's, yeah, because it's hard to do it that that often. But that's fun. What's a and what's a bad habit? <laughs> I mean, I think <laughs> it's like where you get into like. Uh, I think like, the, I think the things that would be like really bad habits, I don't do in a particularly habitual way anymore, if that makes sense. Like I can, I, I, I'm able to take a more take it or leave it approach to some things. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because um, I think there's, I think there's definitely things where if you were doing them all the time, they'd be really problematic. But if you do them occasionally, they can be quite fun. Like you, you do, do you, you don't procrastinate, for example. You don't put things off. I'm thinking about that. Um, <laughs> let's go back to the question of whether I procrastinate. 
<laughs> You're like, I don't want to, I don't really want to deal with it right now, but if we could just. Okay. I'm not a procrastinator, but it's not a question I want to deal with right now. Worst habit. I mean, I think it's a, look, it's a good one to ask someone's partner, isn't it? That's a really good one to ask someone. Yeah, well, give, like, give me your number later. and we'll, That's like, like a, that's like a seven-hour podcast. <sighs> I mean, it's all, very, it's all very well what you, how you see yourself, isn't it? Please never ask my partner about my bad habits. Just promise that would be me. A hell, that would be a hell of a podcast. Would be, <laughs> you, you make a list of people you're really interested in, and then you interview their partners about them. I have a question about A&R specifically. Well, first of all, uh, who's the best A&R person you ever knew? Or who's somebody whose taste you trust 100%? I think, like, in a, in a sort of of all time kind of way, I think you probably got to say Motown was musically as good as any record label has ever been. Mm. And obviously was a highly creative endeavour in that they were making all the music there and it was all about the studios and the Motown catalogue. It's like the Beatles catalogue, right? It's like a load of the greatest music of all time. That one's right up there. I think Chris Blackwell and Ireland, you know, when it was independent, that was very, very impressive. And that was the big inspiration for what I tried to do with Excel. Ireland was a... Inspiration. I mean, Ireland was a bit yeah, of a template. Yeah, I worked in the warehouse there when I was a kid. So when I was 15 and 16, I worked in the warehouse in the summer because the I had a mate at school called Marcus and his dad was called Dave Domlio and he, he worked at Ireland. And that was the first person I'd ever come across who was in any way connected to the music industry. And I was like, I want in, I want to meet your dad, yeah. I want to like... And so he just let me go and kind of work. I used to operate the shrink wrapping machine. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, I mean, so you'd kinda... like... You'd, you'd like package a free cassette single with a seven inch single um and and i loved it there and they had grace jones oh my they god putting, yeah they were putting run dmc's records out but obviously it was also like you know it was coming out of reggae the gregory isaacs was active at that stage tom waits and i was just like oh okay like this is like multicultural every type of music there's just great taste running through it mm. and it's like you know and it's not hung up on like, is it underground? Is it pop? doesn't matter. It's like, this is just things that are great. So you had a sense even then of just, of wanting to be close to the music industry, of wanting to be part of the club kind of thing, even when you're 15 or 16? Yeah, but I think it would have been almost too, too much to sort of contemplate. Yeah. It was more like, if I can be here in this warehouse doing this great, and then I'm going to be DJing, and then I'm going to be trying to get some studio. To, I was just like, I was just incredibly enthusiastic, all-purpose enthusiasm. And I think most people, you know, you end up doing whatever you're doing. You didn't, you didn't decide that. You know, like if you, you yeah. decide it's music, it's music, that's enough. That's enough. And then, you, then you, you end up finding out where you fit and whether it works. And I've always looked at people and thought, yeah, just because that guy is known for doing that, he could be doing that. He could be doing this. The bass player could be the manager. You know, he might be good at that. <laughs> and, you know, the, the manager might be a better lyricist. You just don't know, you know. And, and I've always tried to not put people in their boxes because I don't think it's how people are. I think people have got a lot of widespread um, abilities and 
you know, you can turn it to all sorts of things. And that was one of the fun things about the book. It was like, okay, this is a different discipline. So let's see if I can do it. Like, you know, do I feel a bit of a fraud being a writer? Yep. That's a good sign. That means you're out of your comfort zone and you're trying to do something, you know. Mm. I've never produced, I'd never produced a whole album before I made the record with Girl Scott Heron. You know, did I feel a bit of a fraud? Yep, that was a good sign. You know, I was terrified. Great. Like I've kind of come to recognise that, that that fear. I mean, the worst habit you could possibly have is to let your fear dictate what you do or don't do. Yeah. That's the worst habit. Well, then you just, you don't do anything. And you don't do anything. But this is a lot of people's lives. You know, they've got dreams and they're not going to do it because they're frightened of failure of what people might say. So they don't pursue them. And... I, you know, I think that that for me has become a mechanism. It's like, does it scare me? Yes. Okay, that's probably a reason to do it, not not the opposite. I remember I read a good thing once where it's just anxiety feeds off avoidance. So you know, as soon as you as soon as you face whatever it is, it right away starts to dissipate a little. I had a that's big- exactly it. If you back away, if you back no, away, no, you back away. It, it, it's not just that you're avoiding it; it actually feeds it. It actually grows it gets, into something it much gets bigger, bigger, much bigger and if than you it go was. towards it. It's like it's like reverse perspective. If you back, you know, if you, if you, if you back away, it gets bigger. If you go towards it, it gets smaller. Yeah, that is a good one. I, that's that's a good one to know. Luckily, I've always been deluded enough to go through with whatever my crazy dreams were. You need that. You need the, del- <laughs> you need the delusion, though. Editor's note: Any of the tracks that we talk about in this episode can also be found on my Spotify or SoundCloud artist page. I asked on the email somebody that you feel is underrated. Yeah, well, I've just finished Malcolm McLaren's biography. It just came out. Brand new. It's serious. It's 800 pages. It's serious. <laughs> Perfect. And he, was, and he was a serious guy. And he was... There's more to that story than people think as well. Because partly because he painted himself in a certain way with that great rock and roll swindle film as like a manipulator and a swindler and all this stuff. And he was an artist and he was an amazing artist and he was incredibly far-sighted and pioneering. And, you know, he came from fashion and he had real craft as a fashion designer and he had real knowledge in terms of the history of fashion. And he was a provocateur and a troublemaker and the Sex Pistols was a piece of art now, they involved people, so that obviously caused a lot of issues because, <laughs> you know, that, that was what he saw as his, um, his paint. And so that's something I've never wanted to emulate. Like, I, I always want to work with people in a way where I'm listening and it's like, I want it to work for the people I'm working with as well as work for me. I want to be, you know, I want to be sensitive to what other people are doing. That wasn't his strength, but he was incredibly pioneering. So, you know... When he, Buffalo Girls, before anyone had made a good hip-hop record in the UK. I mean, Duck Rock is a crazy underrated album. And then he was making a a voguing record not long after that. You know, before Madonna got on that. He was, and also if you you read now the stuff he was saying about, you you know, all the stuff about how things are going to transition online. You know, he was incredibly far-sighted, pioneering, and I would say inspirational. I think he's underrated just because people think of him as, you know, a, a swindler or all those, you know, that, that aspect of him 
and I think he definitely made some controversial decisions, but his, his contribution to culture is massive. And he's, I think he's someone who's worth, worth knowing about. Well, yeah, definitely he became a bit of a pantomime villain and the whole, uh, at least that stereotype of the manipulative Svengali or whatever is the word they always throw yeah. around. Yeah, yeah. Okay, if on one extreme you have a guy like Malcolm McLaren who's definitely has a vision and he's manipulating people like like pieces in a puzzle or like pieces of art, like you said, what's your relationship like with your artist? I mean, someone like an Adele or, I mean, I guess they're all very different. Is it as peers, as two artists? Is it is it a bit paternal? Is it, are you protective? I mean, what, if you had to, to sum up your approach with your artist to your relationship, what is it? I mean, definitely I can tell you're not the Malcolm McLaren type, so there's a warmth and an openness, but a little bit, what's been your approach to dealing with artists? I think there was more of a warmth and an openness with him though, than there's, than there's made out to be, as we just to say that, like one of the things, that's one, that's one of the things they correct in the book. That there you I think go. He I, was, I fell into he, it. I fell into the, no, time. no, but he, no, he put it, he put it across like that. He put himself across as a pantomime villain at times, but he was, he seemed like when the, when the, when shit was really hitting the fan, he was there for people a lot. So I would say that I, I'm a strong character and I like other strong characters. And I had tremendous education from working with Liam because Liam from the word go was like, we're doing it like this. Mm. And I was like, yeah, it totally appealed to me. And I'd always sort of had it in the back of my mind somewhere you could do that. But I needed someone to come along and really embody it. That this, you know, punk influenced and the focus, the will. And the confidence, the D- the DIY thing. And of course, you know, my mum would say, well, you'd always been doing that because you were always like, I'm not doing the school thing, I'm doing music. And, you know, for my family, it was it was, it was was horrendous. They couldn't understand it. It didn't make any sense. Did you get pressure from your family to do something else? Immense. Really? They were, I mean, they've been incredibly, they're, look, they, they, they're incredibly like open about this. They haven't rewritten history. Like, they will say incredibly openly they were completely unsupportive of everything I wanted oh, to do shit, shit. and didn't think and didn't think I should do it and were completely opposed to it. But of course, that just made the, 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 the will and the focus stronger. And there was a certain amount of conflict. But then at a certain point, I, I understood. I was like, what I was saying seemed mad to them. They'd never come across this world before. Me saying, you know, I'm a DJ now. Like I'm, I was out all night. When I was 17 years old, I had cash in my pocket. They were just like, what the hell is going on? They thought I was a drug dealer. And I was actually doing something very positive and constructive. But there was no way they could have been expected to see that. It wasn't where they came from. You know, they'd had like, you know, the Jewish sort of second generation immigrant experience. Were you supposed to be a doctor that would, have been, that would have been really ideal. <laughs> that would have been perfect. The Yiddish word is nachas. The Yiddish word is nachas. That would have been the ideal thing. Do you have brothers or sisters? Yeah, I've got an older sister and she was head girl at school, very academic and, you know, smart. They, they got one out of two, right? Well, but she nudged the door. She nudged the door open for me. She was rebelling in her little ways. You know, she was a vegetarian and she called herself a feminist. So she was like, she was nudging the door open, but I just, I was just, smashing it down I was like I'm not about this I want to go out there and you know I've got things I want to do so 
yeah, so I went out there and, and, and did all that. So I was a strong character. Liam came along. It's like, okay, he's got, he's got this thing really focused. I'm with him. We're doing it this way. Probably at the time, because I was so young, being also, there's a fair amount of arrogance going on there as well. But in terms of the artist relationship, it's definitely, no, we're together in this, you know, and us against the world. That, that was like, that's how you look at it. So I think that's the blueprint. And so from then on, it's like, if I can find people to work with who are similarly self-possessed, strong characters, proper originals, mavericks, I can help them and I can even help them bring that out. I can help them to be even more them. That's mm. what I see as my job. You'll always die trying to be something you're not. It's about being the the version of you. Yeah, How do you be definitely. the version of you? So I think as I've tried to work that out for myself, and that's an ongoing thing, I working with other people. And of course, it's easier to see it in other people than it is to see it in yourself a lot, a lot of the time. I guess there's a deep satisfaction in turning some of the lessons you've had to learn for yourself into really helping these other people. No, it's great. And, and there's this, you know, there's this, there's all this music industry. There's always been these ideas of like difficult people, difficult artists, right? Most of the time they're not difficult. The reason they're being difficult is because someone's trying to tell them to do something they don't want to do for the wrong reasons. And that artist who is difficult in the wrong context, in the right context, that's how, that's exactly how you win is through saying, I'm not having it. I'm having this. I'm not having that. I'm not into you saying I've got to do this. The music industry says I've got to do this. You know, it's got to sound like this for the radio. I'm not doing any of that. I'm just doing it this way. And it's a realisation that there are no rules. People will tell you there are rules. That's an illusion. That's a con. And there are no rules. But there is, you know, but there is this big industrialised complex, you know, the entertainment business. So it's going to try and put you in a box, but it's up to you. And I think if you end up in a box, you know, you can't really blame anyone else necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I think if you, you know, if you've got that, that spirit, it's about, okay, how do I nurture that? So yeah, I've, I've, I've always been into like, if I see that in people, I, I definitely want to try and help them nurture because it's fun and it's fun when you can do stuff differently and it's fun when you can break rules. And I'm sure that's like, plays into what would have been my kind of youthful fantasies of how I, you know, I'm like, I'm a very, I'm a, I'm punk in my outlook, but I'm polite punk. I've never been about like smashing things up. <laughs> Do you know punk. what I mean? It's like. Polite punk's a good term. Yeah, polite punk. I mean, because that's, you've got to know who you are. And so for some people, I think they can really go around like turning the tables upside down and that works. That That's not for me. I, you know, I, I think like the more patient I've got, and the more I can listen, the better. But there's still a spirit in there, which is like, I want to do it a certain way or let's not bother. So I have a label and I know from, from myself, the times when you find someone else that you love unequivocally, it's actually quite soothing to just support them. Uh, yeah, really kind of relaxing and, and pure to just put everything you've learned into subtly guiding and helping someone else. Well, well... Because to be, you know, to be a curator, you better be an artist. And I think just like, you know, to be a shrink, 
you better have your own problems because you don't <laughs> yes. understand because you don't understand otherwise you don't get it otherwise but i think if you know when you are that and you can find ways of like as you say of sort of connecting it with other people yeah it's a very it's a very powerful thing i'll tell you who who i, I was well i've always been a fan and i've always loved what he does but kieran was so impressive, wasn't he, on here? Uh, yeah, yeah. Like in how he spoke about how so he's doing clear. things. So clear. Yeah, I know. And, and how he's going about it all. And I, I kind of thought like everyone should be listening to that, uh, you know, yeah. artist. And, and also because I think like with the DJing thing, like I suppose it's the same as anything else, but there's lots of people just trying to fit in on mm. there. There's people just trying to do the things that will get them the most likes and, you know, Oh yeah, it's ridiculous. It's just backwards. What struck me about Kieran was just, first of all, I love people where it really seems like they've thought it out peacefully. You know, like they've they've really they've done the work. They're not they're not reacting so much. And with him, it was just so clearly somebody who was willing to wait for the world to come to him. You know, it was just it was funny with that interview. I felt like it was like nothing went wrong for him you know <laughs> i was like where's, oh, that was, I was yeah. like, where's, where's the struggle like we're, we're supposed to where's the where's the angst you know i know you said some funny things about that i remember that like there was yeah it didn't seem like no i was waiting see, for the horror yeah. story there was no twist i was like okay there was no tragedy yeah. what would you consider to be something really good luck that happened to you There's been a lot. You're lucky. You're a lucky guy. I'm a lucky guy. There's been a lot. Um, Pick one. I mean, you don't, I mean, yeah, pick one. I'll pick one. I'll pick one. Pick Pick six. I'll pick one. I'll pick one. Um, But I'm going to error it and qualify it with Uh, 10 different things. Here we go. Comma. Comma. Brackets. I'm I'm going straight in. Um, I contracted a life-threatening illness in 2013 called Guillain-Barre syndrome. And I ended up completely paralyzed and hospitalized. And and I was in a stroke ward of the hospital because the um, symptoms were very stroke-like in terms of this sudden episode of what had happened to me. It just and came totally out of the blue, just no, no. Out of the out of the blue, out of the blue on a Sunday afternoon. I took oh, a God. nap and I woke up and my speech was scrambled and then I just Shit. fell over. Um, and they took me to hospital. When they worked out what it was, what the di- I mean, it was never totally clear, but were they more? They worked, you know, it wasn't a stroke. What kind of became clear was that. There was a good possibility that I was going to recover from this position I was in. And that was pretty much unique in the ward I was in in the hospital. Meaning, so meaning the the, the prospect of a recovery was... Yes. That was not the normal situation. No, it was not. Not with those type of symptoms. A full recovery was not on the cards. It wasn't a given for me, but I remember thinking as soon as it was mentioned as a possibility, feeling like I've had a tremendous bit of luck at this moment and 
and I am going to have a full recovery. I remember just feeling it, absolutely believing that, like 100%, I am going to have a full recovery, whatever that entails. And and I did. And, you know, I, I mean, it was full on. I had to learn to walk again and it was like a lot of physio and all this stuff. But I got everything back, everything. Um, and not only that, but I had a completely fresh outlook on life oh my god and i was able to see stuff for the first time and i was able to think walking down portobello road and getting a cup of coffee is the most immense transcendent experience imaginable and that was that's a huge thing it's very difficult to really um see the full beauty of normal life unless you have it taken away in some way it's just hard to do that it's just hard well well first of all that is that is real luck and that's a good one that's not like oh i found a copy of <laughs> you know that's like <laughs> that's, i thought you're good you know it's not like well when i met the guys from sl2 no um but <laughs> that's a real one that's a good good answer by the way of the feeling that you had when you emerged or the first year or whatever, how much of it is still with you? I mean, how much of it has become a kind of permanent way of seeing things? No, I'm, I'm just, I'm back to being the same dickhead I was before. Yeah. That's what I thought. No, not fully. <laughs> not fully. 20, how much, it's like how 20% life affirmation, 80% original asshole. The original dickhead. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't fully hold on to it, but no, but it's definitely no, that, it's affected. That's it's wild, affected things. I tell you, I think the way I'd probably put it is like, I still like when it comes to things like ambition and things you want to do, right, and your drive and all that stuff. It's like I've still got things I want to do. I will still do things to the best of my abilities, and I'll still try and do things. I'll do things that I love, and but I'll try and do them successfully. Um, but there is a different um, current under sort of pinning it, which is that it doesn't matter. Mm, yeah, none of that. None of that stuff matters. It doesn't matter. Whereas I think in my twenties, I really believed it was like so important what I was doing, and you know. It's basically, you know, yourself at the centre of the world, that, that outlook. And I think, I think I've been lucky to have a couple of experiences which have helped me shift that perspective. And I've got to keep stressing this, not to say I'm not still capable of being a dickhead. Um, Don't worry. I'm going to put that at the beginning of the show. Just like it. <laughs> we interviewed dickhead Richard Everything Russell. He... But, you know, I think the luck, that bit of good luck, great luck, was born out of a bit of bad luck. And I think that's often that's, that's often it the is. way. That's, how that's it often is. the way, isn't it? And and that's sort of, you know, there's this idea that like the seeds of failure contain the seeds of success and vice versa. It's just whether you can whether you can see it. Oh man. Richard, I I think we gotta I gotta stop yeah. just because I, I even have a couple other questions, but, but <laughs> no, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's a pleasure, and it's good, man. I like I like this I like this series. It's quite um, it's quite interesting that it's like coming from the sort of DJ perspective, but it feels like you're getting a lot of like 
really interesting insights from people which maybe I don't know maybe people don't expect from a DJ type thing so I, I think it, <laughs> yeah well, but I you, think, you know what I mean though right it's I, like, listen it's not I, a, underneath every DJ is a real human being you know <laughs> all right man I guess that's it I mean listen I really Richard it's really a pleasure that's a pleasure man thank you and I'm, and I'm you know, like I said I'm, I've been enjoying listening to it it's good stuff if you enjoy my podcast I would like you to take the extra time to recommend it to a friend or to add some little stars or even write a review any of that effort will result in me slowly climbing the algorithmic ladder to the stars which uh, could result in untold riches last thank you last party